Hello and welcome to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine and the statewide campus system, our MedEd Transformation Podcast. Um, I'm excited to have with us again today uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Amy Howard, who is a former uh, director for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, has changed her career up a little bit, but still working in the DEI space. Amy, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me again. I love working with your community. <laughs> we have a pretty great community here. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we've since since the start of our uh, collaborating on these events, it's always been around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I know we we talked on Monday uh, just to kind of get a sense of what what was gonna to happen today. Um, and I think we wanted to acknowledge that, you know, one, we all can be in the same bucket or group, um, our affiliation, because we are all humans. Uh -huh. And at the same time, we have different affiliations into different groups that we associate with, and that's how it should be. <laughs> That's right. We, we go to what's comfortable, like what identifies us or what we identify with, right? Like places that, that affirm who we are. And so that happens organically as it, as it should and does. But a lot of that comes from our socialization from the get-go. Right. So some of it isn't so great, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> like sure um, and I think and I think even for the good stuff like th there's obviously like double-edged swords to that right because if we we stay isolated into certain communities we may never otherwise bear witness or experience um, anything outside of that which is which is the case for a lot of us in other ways um, it can be in really simple context it could be really in broad context um, you know for instance like living in the upper peninsula of Michigan formerly um there are folks who who genuinely have talked about never having met a person of color before or um, having been at the university. That's where they met their first person of color. And we're not talking like 18, 19 year olds. We're talking like 40, 50 year olds. Um, and that's and that's not for naught. It's just like the composition of that particular area. And, I, you know, and those individuals who've made those comments, I don't take to be racist or any sort of bias necessarily towards any other group that isn't white, but just a recognition of like sort of what what can happen when when we do isolate into communities right and and that's just part of the culture of that particular area um people stay there and people don't necessarily travel a ton and people like being um in a, in a smaller populated area and generally speaking there are some some larger dominant and homogenous groups that exist there and and that's again like not for better or for worse like it's great that community exists and it's great that folks have places to find themselves but obviously there are um <clears throat> there are blind spots right like that there are there are blinders that are afforded to us when we are in those sort of siloed or isolated communities that don't give us that exposure to other uh, races or cultures or genders or sexualities or abilities or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think that when we think about it, it happens at birth and it happens within our, within our family and within the different communities that we choose to be part of. And we can see that um, 
But I mean, it happens as soon as we come out of, you know, the womb and the doctor designates our sex based off of genitalia, right? Like that all of a sudden there's a path that's set into place and we we're, we're taught to kind of follow that, that road. Right. And I think going back to like the whole demographics of, of where we live and, and where we came from, um, you know, we know that the world is becoming more culturally diverse. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I even look at the community that I grew up in, um, that there wasn't a underrepresented minority in our entire school district until my junior year of high school yeah um you know if I even go farther back to uh the where my parents grew up that it was a predominantly white middle class community and today the demographics of the area have changed just because they're becoming more culturally diverse and I think over time you know it's going to be everywhere. And and we need to learn about the different cultures that we're interacting with. And again, that's not for better or worse of how it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. It's, that's just what's happening. Well, and we know more, we know better, you know, and we, we are starting to actually see the cracks in the foundation, like that there are systemic problems and, and, and not just saying it. I mean, like we've been talking about these problems or the ways in which, um, different populations are not served in, you know, North America, uh, for, for in perpetuity. But like, I think now we're in a time where we're starting to see, um, action around those cracks in, in the system. And also that we're, we're recognizing them and drawing more attention to them. So I think that with that, like with our social, I guess the social implications are changing. We're also seeing a visible difference and shift. And and that, and I think that transgresses like race. I mean, we're seeing, you know, in 2022, how many more younger folks are coming out as LGBTQIA, um, you know, or identifying as trans or non-binary much younger than when I was a kid. Like I knew my gender was not, was not woman for a very long time, but I didn't know what that meant until I was in my thirties because there wasn't language around it. There wasn't the acceptability that there could be this, this lived condition that is outside of this binary system that we're, we're kind of born into. Um, and so I think we're seeing that too with, with cultural shifts. And I think there's, I, I can't remember the year or the statistic, but you know, in the coming of, I want to say the next two decades, we'll see a large demographical shift um, when it comes to to race and ethnicity in terms of, of of what is conceivable now, right? Like we we know that white identities or Caucasian identities are a, a dominant identity in, in North America currently, but that's not the projections in, in a decade or two. Um, and so what does that mean and how do we move our, our, our consciousness forward? And I think that that's where we're at. We're in this, this state of great consciousness and it's like, you can't unknow the things you know now. And so what do you do with that and how do you move forward? Right. Right. Well, and, and we talk in one of our programs about identifying your groups and, and so, you know, your name in the center and, you know, pick seven groups that you belong to, which you may belong to even more, but pick seven uh-huh. and then start doing your comparison to other groups. 
And I pointed out to a, a group of our students when I did this activity with them, I'm like, you're picking one comparative, but there could be many comparatives. Uh-huh. It's not male versus female, or it's not um, black versus white, black versus <laughs> white, whatever you are, there are multiple comparatives uh-huh. um, when, when you do that exercise. And I think just as, as you just said, when we, as we move forward, it's not going to be black versus white. You know, we now have a lot of, um, a lot more interracial partnerships and, and, and offspring and, mm-hmm. and th- there's not, you're not going to be able to fill in a bubble of what am I anymore? Well, and nowadays, like that's even really difficult. Like I was doing some research at Michigan Tech and I was looking, I was just looking at the student population um, and I would asked internal research, like, hey, can you give me just like number of students who identify in this way? And because it's all self-identified based, right? And the, the interesting piece I came up with was like, you know, there were a very small number of individuals who identified as just Latin or just black, um, or just Asian Pacific Islander, but the leaping majority, like, I want to say there were a couple hundred folks who identified as multiracial, right? Mm-hmm. So at that end, what does that mean? You know, in the United States, multiracial will simply become the condition, it, it, at least in my opinion, like, and then based off the projections, right? Because, we're all multi-ethnic and multiracial individuals comprised of genetic, you know, ancestry and so on and so forth. But like, as we move forward, um, you know, if I can see on my campus, how many students are identifying as multiracial now, um, it, it becomes like this, this question mark, right? Because multiracial could mean a, a billion things to a billion people. Um, I come from a multiracial family and my brother who, is black. Um, he will always identify as African-American before he ad- identifies as anything else. My brother's part white. My mom is, my mom is Italian American. Um, and, but he always identifies as black. He's never clicked, you know, a multiracial button. So it's, it's interesting to see like how much identity does matter in certain contexts, but then also, especially in racial and ethnic identity. Right. But then as we move forward, there is such like a growing number of individuals who are multiracial or folks who are gender diverse or folks who are sexually ambiguous in terms of their sexuality um, in, in whatever way that that defines for them, because there is like you're saying, there's no binary comparative anymore. It's not black versus white. It's not straight versus gay. It's not men versus woman. It's it's all versus all right. Like, you know the LGBTQIA, which has 25 different iterations of the ways that you can even represent that community in, in speech, right? Um, <clears throat> started as LGB and then LGBT and then LGBTQ. And then now, you know, we have probably, I think, broadly three different like professional ways of, of referring to the queer community at large. And so it's like, how do we even start to recognize the nuances of those identities, but also like the other problems and systemic issues that might be faced because we're, you know, our, our systems have all been built in that binary. It doesn't necessarily allow for the other. So when we talk about like our, our cultural baggage and, and unpacking that, mm-hmm. um, 
what does that process look like and and why do we want to unpackage it well i mean like in my opinion and i think the opinion of many scholars and researchers um everybody carries baggage and that's that's accumulated from a whole host of things it could be trauma it's also related to the way that we've been educated and nurtured within our our communities that we've established and talked about but i think that I would hope (laughs) that wanting to recognize those things is a recognition of how we can be better people, right? And that none of us are perfect and we're all going to make mistakes. And, and as we've discussed now and, and in the past, like the, the way that we can serve in justice and equity, diversity and inclusion um, really has to shift pertaining to who you're working with or how you're working in a community or who you're serving um, because it's not a one size fits all, right? Like we can't just do this one thing and then suddenly be absolved of all of these other, you know, pieces of baggage that we carry. But I think it's an ongoing process of recognition of like, oh, shucks, that's a, that's an edge I have. Like that's something I need to pay attention to. And why did that happen or what made me uncomfortable or why did I have this uh this strange interaction or maybe a negative interaction with someone in really identifying what you're carrying um because it's not all prevalent and it's not all conscious like I mean I think that there are folks who believe you know all of x y and z are this and all x y and z are that um and I'm not someone who's going to say like all white people are racist like racist tm like they're all actively going out and doing racist acts but i am going to say that i do think that all people are racist in the way that we have all been acculturated into a system of whiteness we've all been uh taught you know whiteness is this and blackness is that and and have been i mean taught really really anti-black processes and systems our whole lives. And so, you know, for me, I come from, like I said, a multiracial family. I'm not exempt from racism because I'm a white person with a brown, with brown family or black family members, you know, but if anything, it took me years to even recognize that I had carried these limitations with myself and what that meant. And then when I knew it, it's like, you can't unknow that. Like, you can't go back and say, well, okay, well, I was just a child and that didn't matter because like, I can see in live time how that does matter for my brother. And I can see now, like, you know, what I did as a child was not intentional or wasn't um, in any way. And and for an example, is like, my brother always had a lot of issues in school. Um, And I didn't, I, I went through school. I wasn't a great kid, but I wasn't a bad kid. Um, and my brother was probably the same. I think my brother's great because he's my brother, but he would always be in trouble. Like, like always had notes being sent home, always had emails or calls, um, being sent to my mom. Um, and whenever my mom would pull my brother aside, she would be like, you have to stop making this about race because my brother would always be like, this teacher's being ugly to me because I'm black. And my brother was like one of the only black kids in our school. Um, And my mom would be like, you can't make everything about race. Not everybody's out to get you, blah, 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 blah. And, and I think I echoed a lot of that because I was hearing my mom say it to my brother. I'm like, Ty, you have to figure out these other ways to, to navigate this, or you need to like, 
you know, stop talking back in class or you need to just swallow your pride and whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, as an adult being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like limited in that way because I was taught to be a passive woman (laughs) and I was taught to keep my head down and keep my mouth shut. And I was taught all of these things. And that's what I did to like get through. And so I'm teaching my brother that on top of imbuing that with racism that I'm hearing from my mom. And again, I don't think my mom meant negatively by it, but she did negatively by it because by and large, I think a lot of those situations were about race. Um, but I wouldn't have known that at the time. And, but I know that now. And so it's like, how do I move through the world now with being more cognizant about like not going to that place and making that assumption if, um, you know, when I worked at Michigan Tech, like if a student of color came to me and was like, oh, I'm having problems with all of these people and blah, blah, blah. Like, like if I hadn't taken time to unlearn that limitation that I had heard as a young person and probably carried for quite some time, that could be a really devastating conversation for my students nowadays. Like, oh, well, it's probably not about race. It's probably about this, this, and this. It's like, I am not black. Like I'm not the one who's experiencing that. And so I'm not the expert in this particular moment of truth. And that person has a lived condition that is compounded by incidents and isolated events just like this. And so, yeah, it's absolutely about race, but it's not like, like this person is, or or these people may be intentionally going out, but it's all about those, those pieces of cultural baggage that have been accumulated. And then the, the negative and sinister effects that it can then have on a person. And I think when you start to break down like your actual actions and your actual words into future promise or future peril for someone, I can't, I can't sit with myself and go, well, why wouldn't someone want to do that? That just makes you a better person. That makes you a better practitioner. That makes you a better teacher. That makes you a better doctor. That makes you a better parent, a better aunt, a better uncle. You know what I mean? Like this makes you just, this makes you grow and be able to care for people in a different way. If you're able to start unpacking that baggage. And I'm not saying you have to go like full tilt and like, like identify all of your, your, your gray areas and, and really tend to it. But I am saying like, take it step by step. And, and as you do that, you'll start to see that the impacts aren't just these one-in-one situations with these impacts are, are the quality of your integrity. These impacts are the quality of the effect that you have on other people. And I don't know, I think that that's really powerful. And, and when we, t- when we talk about these, when we talk about our cultural baggage there, there, it includes implicit biases. And they're implicit because we don't know that we have them. And really this implicit bias training is so that we can gain awareness into our blind spots as, as we call them. Right. And not just so that we now know that we have a bias, but to actively work to make sure that that bias doesn't seep into our interactions. Right. I mean, like, let's, let's talk about blind spots just for 10 seconds and and use it in a different way. Um, I, I, when I think of blind spots, I think of what I'm driving, right? Like there are certain cars will want to have terrible vision, but like there are certain cars where I have no access to see certain spots and, and we're, t- we, well, in most States, I guess I, I lived in a state that if you didn't take driver's ed, you couldn't get your license until you're 18. And then your like insurance was higher and all kinds of stuff. But like, in general, most individuals who have their license and have the uh, privilege of being able to go through a driver's ed course, 
have to go through a driver's ed course to learn about blind spots, to learn about the rules of the road, to learn how to drive. Right. And without that awareness, like we would all just be like playing crash bandicoot, like driving style on the roads. Right. Like we wouldn't know how to maintain the integrity of like how to safely drive or how to be, or how to react to an accident or how to drive knowing you have blind spots. Right to know that there are spots in your car that you can't see things. So what do you do to tend to those? What do you do to, to make sure that you're being as safe as possible? And so I think it's the same thing, right? An implicit bias training is giving you the tools to know how to tend to your blind spots, to know how to safely navigate your life in a positive capacity. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. And, and I know when I, when I talk to, the students and the residents and the faculty uh, about this, I tell them, I go, you know, you may not know that your implicit bias is seeping out into your interactions with your patient, but guess what? The patient does. Mm -hmm. Um, And I say, I, you know, we have the press Ganey uh, survey results, you know, a percentage of patients that received care at your facility or in your clinic get this survey to fill out about the care that they received. Now, the Likert scale, the one through five, how clean, how clean was your room and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not as worried about those. I go right to the narratives. Yep. The narrative responses give me the most detail on that patient's experience. And your, the patients will say, you know, this is how I was treated, or this is what came out, or, and then if you start looking, because those patient surveys are linked to the patient, and mm-hmm. sometimes they can say, yes, you can use my name. The minute they can say yes, those are the ones that, that hospitals take deep dives into to say, what, what is it about this case? And we start looking at those social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. um, and access to health. And, you know, you know, are you an underrepresented minority? You know, is there some type of oppression going on here? And those are the ones that the health systems need to take a bigger look at, because if one patient is saying it, think of how many are not. Right. And, And it all comes down to like the ability to advocate too, right? Like, you know, I think that those surveys are great because it does give an ability for individuals who may not feel comfortable in that moment to like stand up and say, well, like, whoa, I don't think this care is right. And there's not a lot of room for that. I mean, as someone who's been in, an, you know, like had doctors my whole life, like there's not a lot of space for being able to say this didn't work for me or this care. Um, and, and when you do, it's, it can be really uncomfortable. I had an, an, a situation in the upper peninsula where I had a nurse And I was kind of baffled by this whole situation. And I just told my doctor, I was like, I don't ever want to work with that nurse again, because this made me really uncomfortable. But um, I had gone in and, you know, you get weighed right out of the gate when you have a new appointment. And I had just gotten done having the stomach flu and uh, she weighed me and she looked at my chart and she said, oh, you've lost weight. And I said, oh yeah, I just had the stomach flu. That's probably not an accurate representation of my weight. And she's like, I love a good stomach flu to reset me. And I was like, 
that's not healthy. <laughs> and I didn't like that. Right. So I felt comfortable in that situation, but then there were probably a barrage of things that happened with my doctor following that, that I didn't know how to advocate for. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So those surveys give like an option, but you're right. Like the health determinants are, are only so much that you can determine based off of this feedback. And if you only get one out of a hundred folks, you have to make an assumption. I think at some point that this must be the care that many are experiencing because it took a lot for that person to have to like, to, to relive that and experience that trauma or have to be that transparent about, um, their experience. And it's a lot of things that we don't realize affect us until they affect us. Like, I think I told you the other day in 36 and a half years, I had my first doctor's appointment that was gender affirming where both the nurse and the doctor asked me what my pronouns were. And it was like both of those moments, which I have done a million times to people I've had my pronouns asked, but I've never had it by a doctor and most certainly not a doctor that I was uh, seeing as a patient. And to have that happen, I was like, I didn't know I needed that. I didn't actually really didn't know how much that mattered to me until that moment. And And then I think in that moment, I got really emotional because I was thinking to myself, like all of these times that I did feel really crappy about a doctor and pertaining to my gender or their perception of my gender or um, my medical needs that are are related to my reproductive, like, you know, aspects of my body and gendering them in a way that, you know, assumes me to be all women, et cetera, et cetera. But like in these moments, like we're really kind of traumatizing to me in my medical experience. And so we have to pay attention to that because that then impedes the opportunity for health, right? Because if I'm not able to advocate or if I'm getting mistreated or if I'm not getting the care that I need, um, then most certainly others aren't either. And if they all look or sound or act like me, then that's a bigger problem, right? That's a, that's a very large blind spot. And I think that that's what a lot of this really comes down to is so that we're aware of what our blind spots are and we can start mitigating them and, and changing our, our way of interacting with others because we now are able to recognize where our biases may come into play. And I'll, I'll give an example of mine that I know that, that I know uh, about myself is when I hear surgeon I think male Mm -hmm. knowing full well that there are a lot of female surgeons and I'm using male and female very broadly here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so instead of somebody's like, Oh, I have to see the surgeon. Oh, what's his name? I don't say it that way anymore. What is their name? Mm -hmm. Um, Only because I've become aware and, and oh and i'm sure that there's other examples too that that aren't coming to mind but that's probably probably the biggest one um that i caught myself uh since going through these trainings and preparing these trainings and i was like you know what laura did a good thing the licensing um agency by making this a requirement and not like a one time you do it and you're done but a continued requirement with each renewal of our license. Because uh-huh. again, I think it is just about awareness uh-huh. and starting to change just how we interact and communicate. Well, right. Like 
it's like anything else. Like, I mean, I have, I guess, like, I have this belief that I think everybody wants to do good in this world in some way, shape or form, or everybody wants to be a good person. Um, And I think this is just one of those ways that like, when we conceive to ourselves, like, I'm a good person, and I do these good things, or I feel good about myself, because I do this, like, this is just one more extension of that. And it's not, it's not something we don't already do. You know, we, we modify our language, we modify our approach, we do all of the things that would be required of us to investigate a little bit deeper about our implicit and unconscious biases. Um, Every day, you know, like when I talk about pronouns, for instance, or names, like when, when students have changed their names, you know, people are often like, well, that's not how I met them and blah, 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 and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, I get that. Like, I can get that it's a practice that you have to employ and that you have to keep working at it. I said, however, um, to say that you just can't do it because that's not how you met them. That's like such a baseless argument because there are so many people in this world that we have nicknames for, right? Like I have probably a hundred undesirable nicknames from family members because they just come with the territory, I guess. My family is very big on nicknames. And so when someone calls, you know, you that like, that's, you're like, okay, that's my nickname by this person, or that's how I'm referred to by this person. Um, and so people have adjusted their language to be able to call you that, which is so far from my name, which is three letters long. So I don't know how I got nicknames, but here we are. (laughs) Um, but you know, like it, it happens or, you know, people who's like my grandmother's name is Patricia. She goes by Patty, you know, or, you know, people whose names are Robert and they go by Bob or William goes by Bill or, you know, Margaret goes by Peggy. Like that one doesn't even make sense to me, but like, here we are, right? Like that there are names that we have been able to adjust and modify and call people, you know, oh, we may have been introduced to a Margaret and then all of a sudden they're Peggy, you know? And so, there are ways that we do these things already and make these concessions or treat people differently um, based off of how they need to be treated. So like, why wouldn't we want to take that same recognition in things that are actually doing trauma to people or harming people and want to do that better? Like, I think that I would hope most people would want to know those things so that they could work toward being the best version of themselves that they're capable of or being the most thoughtful they can be um, that they're capable of and those sorts of things. Um, Obviously that's not how the world works in all the ways, but like, that's my hope for people is that like, whenever I do these trainings or these conversations, you know, it would be very easy for me to just say, well, this is what's right. And this is what's wrong because I'm a person of firm conviction and value, but that's not how it is because we're all living and growing and shifting and learning and evolving into whomever we're supposed to be in this, you know, in this world. And so through that, it, it's just about practicing how to be a good person, or it's about trying to figure out what, what does that mean? And, and at some point it means that we're not all perfect and that we have to be better in these ways. And so recognizing, recognizing it is step one. And that's, and it's okay that you're recognizing it. And then when you know that, what do you do about that? So what, what would you say, um, kind of like a a take, like a takeaway or an assignment, what can people do to become more aware of their implicit biases? I think the first would be just to like, read an article or listen to a podcast or something 
on the experience of others through the lens of implicit and unconscious bias. Because I think about, about how many folks think that they're doing good and, and I'm one of them, right? Like, but my grandma's in the back of my head going, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Like we can all be well-meaning and we can all be people who gear toward doing good, but we still might be doing unintended harm. And so listening to the lived experiences of people who have identities that are not our own and really bearing witness to what that means and then starting to, to really recognize what are your unconscious biases um, and how do those manifest. And, and that's, again, that's a lifelong process. Like none of these things are like, go to a training, check the box. Now I'm not racist. Go to the training, check the box. Now I'm not homophobic. You know, like it's not, that's not how it works. It's like a lather, rinse, repeat. Like we've got to keep doing this and it's cyclical because these things are all interwoven. All of these oppressions that people who are historically excluded or underrepresented experience are all interconnected. And so the minute you think, oh, I'm, I'm doing good over here, you probably need to tend to something over there. And that's okay because that's what, that's what, that's the action. I think it is. It's like being willing to sit with yourself in moments of discomfort, um, which means like when you're bearing witness to anguish, that's uncomfortable, you know, and, and not justifying it to yourself. Well, I've never called someone the N word, or I've never misgendered someone, or I've never done that, or I have a black brother, or I have a gay friend, you know, like these, these qualifications that then excuse behavior that is actually problematic, but instead just going, okay, like, why am I uncomfortable with taking accountability for this moment? Or how can I apologize? Like, um, how can I learn from this moment and be better the next time? And if I make a mistake again, how can I be more proactive about remedying that situation? And so I think it, in the action in and of itself is just being willing, um, being willing to, to understand that you're an imperfect person and that while you may think that you treat everybody the same, or you may intend to treat everybody the same, um, or the best that you can, that, that that's not always going to be the case for everybody because not everybody needs to be treated the same. And so I think, you know, at some point, maybe going to a training or there's like every kind of free training online that can help you start to unpack some of these unconscious biases. Um, there are a wonderful amount of great books, um, that you can read if that's kind of your, your cup of tea. And so, I think it's it's all about educating yourself on where you're at and then practicing um, practicing good strategies on how to tend to these these different moments of contention for yourself. And and like I said like it's it's an ongoing practice and process that's lifelong because it ain't over until it's over, you know? Like we we live we live in a system that reinforces that. So it it is something that has to be continuous for an individual to, to guide themselves with. Exactly. And our implicit biases were formed a long time ago in us. It goes back to the, that concept of how we were socialized and, um, you know, when did we learn and how did we learn about right and wrong? I use the example of, you know, I was raised in one of four girls and like siblings do in every household is, you know, they bicker and they fight and blah, blah, blah. And whenever my parents wanted us to stop like the whole wrestling, it was don't touch anybody. You guys are not allowed to touch other people. Like keep your hands to yourself. Mm -hmm. My husband, it was him and his sister. 
Um, and my husband was taught, you don't touch girls. You keep your hands off girls. And then we get married and we have kids and we talk through things. And I was like, no, I'm like, Allie doesn't get a right to hit her brother. So why, like, I'm not going to just teach Charlie to keep his hands to himself. Ellie needs to keep her hands to herself too. Um, but we, we learn these right, right and wrong from a, a very early age. And it's really when we, when we see something that challenges our belief, you have two options that you can take. You can either do something about it that will change the way that you think to behave going forward, or you don't do anything about it and you keep going on with your life. But if something is in front of you and you can see that it challenges one of your beliefs, one of your biases, one of your stereotypes that maybe you didn't even know existed, that is when we change. Right. And it's, it can be really deep in like, uh, and complex things that we have to work through, but it can also be really, really simple things that we think are innocuous or ineffectual, you know, like, so I was talking to a group of, of, um, volunteers for, uh, an elderly, uh, service in the upper peninsula, um, which the volunteers happen to be of an older uh, demographic as well. And so I used the example, I said, you know, I believe that all of you, you know, you're volunteers, you do all of this great work. So I believe you're good people. Um, and I believe that your families probably think you're great people. You know, I, I don't, I don't have any questions of that. And I said, but I'm going to ask you something who here has grandchildren, you know, and almost all of them raised their hands. And I said, great. And I said, now, how many of you, and I said, and this isn't a judgment, this is just a question. How many of you will look at your your, your grandchildren who have, have been designated female and go, you're so beautiful. And then you look at your grandchildren who have been male identified and you go, you're so strong and you're so smart. And I said, I don't think you mean ill by saying those things. I said, but if you're only ever telling your girl grandchildren, you're so beautiful and you're only telling your male grandchildren, you're so strong and smart, you're telling them already who they can be. You're telling them, like you're, you're acculturating them into understanding, like your womanness is linked to beauty and your madness is linked to strength and smart, you know, intelligence. And so they all were just like sat there and like looked at me and I was like, and now I'm not saying you have to stop doing that. I'm just saying like, maybe you also call your grandchild. That's a girl strong and smart too. And you call your, your boy grandchild, um, beautiful as well. You know, like I'm just saying like that they all benefit from these different adjectives and these different ways of describing them and, and, and affirming them. I said, but simple language tweaks like that can really impact like how that child forms like a cognizance around their identity and what is expected of them. Spot on. And, and we, we do something very similar to that when we're um, doing our training on giving effective feedback and the, the narrative around that feedback. And instead of saying excellent and outstanding, let's start using words regarding their competence that, you know, because it, there's enough literature out there that says on those narratives, when you, that more uh, white residents were described as excellent, performing excellent, where, um, underrepresented minorities were not given those same descriptors. Yeah. You know, performed well. 
but they could have done it the exact same way, but the, the descriptor is different. So let's, let's start using the, the competence. Like, you know, did they, did they meet these requirements to be classified as competent? And that's why a lot of um, our uh, evaluations have turned into um, uh, performance-based assessments on the actual skill and not how you feel about them. Absolutely. And that's exactly how it should, you know, we've been going through, um, with the company that I work with right now, we, we run a pretty, I mean, like clearly there's a hierarchy in place because hierarchies are a thing. Um, but we, I, I would say like, it's a very egalitarian kind of approach. And so currently, um, you know, our performance evaluations or performance assessments have been completely overhauled to be exactly that really based in the competencies that are required of, of that particular position and how did you perform them? You know, what, like, what are some things that were like high achieving indicators or what are some things that are, um, opportunities for growth, you know, those sorts of pieces that were really specific. And then we had this really deep conversation about if bonuses, cause, um, we, we have a, a an annual bonus structure and currently, any like full-time administrator, I think it's split equally, um, this like pot of money. And they were asking if we should go based on, um, based on assessment, uh, what they call it, merit. And I was like, no, because exactly to what you're, you're talking about, what you then start to see is this, this breakup of what merit means that is not based on performance at all. Right. But, but, but based on person, right? And so keeping it in an egalitarian fashion, sure, there are people who I think that we have very high achieving folks in, in my company. So I like, I, and, but I would even feel like even if someone wasn't like that, we're all in this together and it's our responsibility as a company together to uplift that person and help them find success. And so why wouldn't we keep it in this, in this open pot where everybody is, is treated equally because we're all contributing to the company's success. And so I think a lot of those conversations have to happen because those are the systems that we're talking about that really then do separate people, right? That's why we see pay discrepancies and those pay discrepancies are not based on merit or performance. It's based off of people, you know, like, why do we see a gender gap in, you know, in salaries, but the performance, if you look at, I would say in many, uh, in many STEM fields, you will see the data shows that women identified folks, um, perform higher at higher levels than their, their male counterparts, but are paid significantly less or are not able to seek the same sorts of promotions that then, you know, male counterparts of the same studies. And it's like, well, that's not by, that's not by accident. Right. Right. It's the system working exactly as it's intended. <clears throat> and so that's so, why we're trying to change the system. Right. And that's where these implicit biases come in, right? Like by us tending to these little, these edges that we have, that helps to build better systems for our future, that help be, build more justice and equity-based systems that serve, truly serve all, and aren't built in this you know, zero-sum game where there are dispensable peoples in which you know, our world is built on the backs upon. And, that, and, and I'm not saying that that's what I believe, I'm saying that that's what the system says. I mean, that's capitalism. Right. 
So I think the bigger effect, like I said, with the implicit and unconscious biases is really recognizing that in these small macro environments, there can be really effective and really impactful, but in a grander scheme, it creates a better system for our future, for everybody to thrive and survive. And that's what we're trying to do, survive, thrive. (laughs) Right. And hopefully one day celebrate, you know, like a lived existence among our peers, right? Like that it's not so contentious or so divisive. Well, Amy, thank you again so much for joining me. Any final takeaway thoughts that you'd like to share with our community? I would just say, push yourselves further than you think you're capable. You know, things get uncomfortable. And I think that when we rise at our best selves and when we are filled with the most integrity is when we're pushing through these fear and discomforting moments to arrive at someplace better that makes us better for everybody, which inherently makes us better for ourselves. And so when you feel uncomfortable or when you're faced with with something that doesn't resonate correctly, investigate that and try to understand that and try to, to be better um, than you, than you believe you're capable of, because I think, I think we're all capable of more. Yeah. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me always. Always.